As you're seated, we come then to Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. We read earlier, but here again this verse, Proverbs 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. This comes at the end of a section in Proverbs that has been laboring to show the beauties of true wisdom, that wisdom is not just the growth of one's intellect, it's not just becoming bookish, it's not by amassing a great library and reading or doing deep word studies or any such thing, rather we see it as full of the life of beauty, the life of serving the Lord and being servants to others and doing so in a spirit of love and generosity and discernment, realizing that every circumstance calls for a fresh consideration of what is before us and a fresh application of the holy law of God, which is our standard in all behavior and desires. And though we have some semblance of knowing what wisdom is, the scriptures regularly set before something that perhaps gives us a bit of difficulty. And it's this in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, throughout scripture, wisdom is commended again and again through example, through precept, through direct commendation as is in Proverbs 4 and verse 7, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Now think of that for a moment, the expression there in Proverbs 4, that you are to expend yourself with all of your expending. You are to get, with all of your getting, wisdom. It is to consume your approach. It is to be a comprehensive pursuit every day of your life. In other words, this isn't something for school-aged children or those who perhaps would rise to doctorate and postdoctorate degrees. This is a call that comes to every single member of God's covenant, from the youngest to the oldest, from the most unlearned to the most learned in the way of this world. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, with all thy getting get wisdom or understanding. Now, the text before us tells us the first step, and not as if it is the first step from which we ever advance fully, but rather, if ever we attain wisdom, and to whatever degree we attain wisdom, it will be insofar as this part is true of us, that we have the fear of the Lord. Now, in our watered-down day, much or many in the church don't understand what to make of such an expression, the fear of the Lord, because we've been so taught a uh, misbalanced uh, view of one passage of Scripture that uh, there is no fear in love, and perfect love casteth out fear. Now we have no hesitation in acknowledging the truth of that. It is a scriptural passage that where there is love, there is a type of fear that is cast out. But it's not the fear of the Lord that's cast out. It's not this that's cast out. Because if the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind, 
there is the fear of the Lord in love. But rather, that passage in the New Testament is speaking of that torment, that fear of condemnation, that when love is perfected in the Christian, when assurance is gained by grace, when there is the confidence that our sins are forgiven and that we are God's and God is ours, there's no longer the fear of torment. The covenant of works, we realize, is no longer our master. We stand under the covenant of grace. And yet in the covenant of grace, there is still to be this characterizing of the Christian as one who fears the Lord, not with this trepidation of being consumed of judgment, but rather, as the Scriptures emphasize elsewhere, this due honor of His name. Notice the importance of it in this book alone, this topic of wisdom and the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, you have a similar statement, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So where there's the fear of the Lord, there is a delight in learning of the Lord. There's a drawing of our souls unto God to learn more of Him. This is why it's no wonder that as we mature by God's grace, that it's not us saying, well, you know, I've had enough of God's word. We're rather thinking, how can I take more in, both secretly and privately in our families and our churches and so on, because we love instruction. We want to learn more. It's true that not everyone will attain to the same degree of understanding, nor to the same skill of learning. But every Christian will indeed advance in the school of wisdom, because if a Christian... They've been given this grace of the fear of the Lord. We see, of course, in Proverbs 9.10, a similar statement as we'll consider this evening, but also notice in Psalm 111. Psalm 111, and there at verse 10, you have, again, a parallel statement. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endureth forever. There's a doing that comes from wisdom. And you'll see it in Psalm 112 in verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. Brethren, there are many things that could be said today, but one thing that needs to be said is when there are so-called Christians that rise up and say the commandments of God aren't that important, I'll show you a better way. Whatever else that is, whatever error they've taken up, whatever misguided step they have begun to advance, they have taken a step away from a fundamental and foundational truth that where there is the fear of the Lord, there is a delight in knowing God and wanting to walk in His ways. And what are His ways? but those ways that he's marked out in the scriptures by his commandments. Job is commended for one who fears God. This is one thing that God points out about Job in Job chapter 1. Fools and wicked ones are the opposite of the wise. In fact, you remember as Paul quotes in Romans 3, that one summary statement about godless men is, there is no fear of God 
before their eyes. None. In other words, it is a difference not between someone who is more advanced versus less advanced. The fear of the Lord marks out those who are Christians versus non-Christians. The fear of the Lord is a fundamental and essential character of the Christian. To be without the fear of the Lord is to be without the grace of God. John Murray in his chapter, Principles of Conduct, which has been published as a standalone booklet, The Fear of the Lord calls, after much opening of the scripture, he calls the fear of the Lord the soul of godliness, the life of godliness, that if ever we're going to be godly, it is from this principle of God's fear in us. Now again, as noted, the fear of the Lord can express this fear of torment, what we call terror. And brethren, before we dismiss that, we ought to remember, though the world has adopted this notion that, you know what, there's no need for terror, and the church has begun to adopt it as well, brethren, let's remember this. Our God is a consuming fire. The wicked shall perish. They shall suffer immeasurably. Any and all who die without Christ enter immediately upon an everlasting state of unending anguish, torment, pain that shall never lessen, shall never decrease, shall never near its end. It is wrong for people in the church to say, well, we don't need to tell people about hell. We don't need to tell people about judgment. Christ spoke about judgment freely, openly, publicly, regularly. And he did so without hesitation to make people afraid, to make them see judgment's coming. But brethren, that's not the fear that's mentioned here. It's that which reverences God, what we call honoring or being struck with awe. Oh, how pitiful our English language has adopted These corruptions of words, the idea of awesome is now applied to the slightest bit of news. I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch. Oh, that sounds awesome. But the word awesome is one that gets the depth of our being and in some sense paralyzes us with the wonder of majesty and grandeur and glory that's before us. We speak of things that are as awesome that are base and without value. But when something is truly awesome, it arrests our attention. It draws our attention. And this is something bound up with the fear of the Lord. So we wish to begin a small series of sermons on biblical wisdom by looking at the beginning of wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord. Of the Lord. So consider then three things this evening. Firstly, the meaning of wisdom. Secondly, the source of wisdom. And thirdly, the gaining of wisdom. The meaning, the source, and the gaining of wisdom. As to the first, the meaning of wisdom. We can search the scriptures and see a number of things regarding biblical wisdom. It's impossible for us this evening to be exhaustive in our treatment, but As we commence a small series upon this notion of biblical wisdom, it will be helpful to see a number of things related to wisdom. You'll notice the text before us, Proverbs 9 and verse 10. It speaks of 
the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. But notice the parallel expression. The knowledge of the holy is understanding. These aren't simple synonyms, though the word wisdom, knowledge, and understanding have overlap. But one thing that's being taught to us is that wisdom is associated with the knowledge of God. There must be, in other words, a key, a fundamental, an absolute essential ingredient of true biblical wisdom is there's a right knowledge of God. There's a knowing of who God is, what God is, what God loves, what God hates. If one does not know God truly, they cannot have true wisdom. True wisdom is founded upon, as we'll see more fully, one's true knowledge of God. And you can see this evident again and again. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he humbles himself, right? There's an aspect of awe and reverence. He doesn't just casually and coolly sort of walk through and say, yeah, that's God, you know, he and I are tight. As you hear careless and casual people speak today, He doesn't say that blasphemous expression, the big man upstairs. All of that stuff is only a display that these people don't know God. God's not a big man upstairs. God's not a grandfatherly figure. God is the I am that I am. He is the great I am, the omnipotent God. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the eternal and glorious one whom the angels cannot cease but praise. There are things in our lives that bring from us what we call almost an involuntary expression. This happens sometimes when something scary happens. You're driving down the road and a car runs a red light and you shout out. You didn't rationally think and say, oh, I've understood that this car is almost... Uh, T-boned me and flipped my car and now I'm going to shout. It comes instantaneously. Or something tremendously happy happens and without thinking it through, you start laughing and perhaps crying tears of joy. These are bound up in the understanding of something that grips us. What we see with Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is this true response to the true revelation of God. You see this even when it is that Peter sees the display of Christ's glory and he humbles himself, depart from me for I'm a wicked man, I'm a sinner. John sees the glory of Christ in the opening of Revelation and he falls down at his feet as dead. They know something about God, the transcendence of God, but brethren... They learn something more about God when Christ puts his hand upon John and says, you know, be not afraid. It is I. It's not, in other words, just the knowledge of his unmeasurable glory. It's also the knowledge of his overwhelming grace. These things are revealed from God to us that the one who knows him does not only know his holiness, but knows him as the holy and gracious God. Doesn't only know him as the grandpa-like figure that just sort of brings up people on his knees, pats him on the back, and overlooks a bunch of things, but rather sees the true grace 
of a holy God being gracious. Oh, brethren, we could spend and will spend eternity meditating, thinking upon, and glorying in this God. But we see this, that if ever we are to have wisdom, we must know God. Which, by the way, means that we must know God as He is, as He's revealed Himself. And though we can learn things truly, and we ought not to underestimate this, we can learn things of God by observing creation and by observing providence, the infallible guide, the unerring guide, the gracious guide is his word, which gives us clarity in making us see these things with perfection. So we must know God if we're to have wisdom. Wisdom includes true knowledge of God. But wisdom also includes pure desires. And so it's not just a brain activity, a mental activity. It's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual habit, a spiritual act, a spiritual disposition. So you can see this in a lot of places, but notice just as one example among others, Proverbs chapter 22, as it speaks of wisdom. Notice at verse 17, bow down thine ear and hear the words of the wise and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. Do you hear that language? Apply thine heart. It speaks of the inward disposition. I'm longing for it. I want it. I'm desiring it. Don't just sit here and listen to a lecture. Don't just sit here and take notes is the idea. Don't just sign up for the class, come in, get a good grade on the test and so on and pass through. No, give me your heart. Your desire is to be fixed on this. This is in back of Proverbs chapter 4 when it says, With all thy getting, get understanding. Let your whole soul be engaged in it. So in other words, this isn't, wisdom is not some natural predisposition. It's not something, well, this person is born wiser than the other person. It's a grace by which our hearts are drawn to desire the provision of God's instruction and conformity to the same. Give me your heart. Apply your heart unto wisdom. If you and I are going to grow, we must learn more about God. This is preeminently by a prayerful study of His Word. It is likewise in reading helpful books that open to us the Scriptures and help us to see more clearly what God is and who God is. But we can pass through those things without so much as the beginning of a desire, a desire to know Him. True wisdom has as its seat the heart, the soul, the inmost being of a person. Moreover, another ingredient of true wisdom is obedience. Wisdom is not someone who is head smart and book smart and well learned in that way. But a wise person is one who knows the Lord and the the will of the Lord and obeys the will of the Lord. So consider how this is spoken of Israel in Deuteronomy and chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 speaks of the revelation that God has given through His Word. And He says in verse 
5, Behold, this is Deuteronomy 4 and verse 5, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon Him for? You notice that this passage actually brings the other ingredients together. What nation is so great who has God so nigh? There's an intimacy with God. There's a relationship with God. They know God. But the concrete expression that teaches them about God is identified as statutes, judgments, and what the Lord has commanded. They are to keep, to guard them. For this is what? It's your wisdom and your understanding. And the nations will look and say, there is a wise and understanding people. Not because they have placards that are showing up and and broadcasting these words, but because they have people who are embracing the Lord's instruction and walking in His ways. That's a wise people. They fear the Lord. They walk in His ways. Moreover, another ingredient is that Wisdom has sound discernment. Sometimes we think, well, I've memorized the Ten Commandments, I've memorized the shorter catechism, perhaps I've memorized the larger catechism, and all of the multitude of helpful concrete thoughts that go into understanding the commandments. I do deep dives on these things and on those things and these practices and those practices, therefore I must be wise. But the answer is no, you may still be a fool. Because wisdom demands discernment. You remember Solomon. Solomon's brought into the kingship and there's this case that's brought before him of these two women who claim the same child. And he, by the wisdom afforded to him, determines, listen, I know what will reveal who the true mother is. And he says, cut the child in two, 1 Kings chapter 3, and give half to the one and half to the other. And what happens? Well, the one woman says, whatever, because she's not the mother. The other woman says, by no means, give her the child. Now, brethren, we ought not to think there is a standing way to determine these things. We would be frustrated in a heart uh, beat when we start to use that as the only way to determine things. But unto Solomon was given discernment. He knew the circumstances. He knew the moment. He knew and could see what was going on. And he knew the way to determine and to bring forth the testimony of the mother. Notice how this is presented in the book of Proverbs there at chapter 26. Believe it or not, there are some unbelieving scholars who look at such a passage as we're about to see and say, see, the Bible has a contradiction only to show the foolishness of the unbelieving scholar. Verse 4 of Proverbs 26 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. So the meaning of that is, don't degrade yourself 
and be like the fool. But then notice verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Brethren, which one are we to do? When is it we're to answer the fool according to his folly? When is it we're not to answer the fool according to his folly? When is it we're to rebuke a sinner? When is it we're not to rebuke a sinner? Do you realize there are times you shouldn't rebuke a sinner? The scriptures tell us that. There are moments when it is foolish for us to do so. It's casting our pearls before swine to do so. But brethren, this is a key ingredient of wisdom. It discerns the moment. It discerns the circumstances. It sees more than just what's right before it and sees impact and effects and other such things. It knows when the glory of God is at risk of being defamed and it knows when it would be to be more unglorious unto God were we to speak. There are times when we're to tell others of the gospel. There are times when we're to be silent with the gospel. There are times we're to go further in our teaching with others. And there are times where we're to back off in our teaching with others. There are times when we are to stand for something very clearly. And there are times where to let people go by without, as it were, saying so much as a word. But how and when, why and where are these things done? Brethren... Welcome to the need for wisdom. Wisdom is not a booklet that gets open and flips down countless pages and says, you know, in this circumstance, see rule 131.6 section C. There is a need for heavenly wisdom by which God communicates to us his wisdom and opens to our understanding what needs to be said, when it needs to be said and how it needs to be said. Think of this for a moment. Christ looked at his disciples and he looked and he saw ignorance in them. And he said, I have much more to say unto you. Do you know what that means? They had ignorance that needed to be overcome. He didn't say, so sit down and buckle up because we're going to have a massive session right now. I'm going to pour into you all everything that you don't know. He says, you're not ready for it yet. But what I'll do is I'll send the Spirit and He'll guide you. Brethren, if that's the Master doing that, His wise disciples will do that as well, exercising discernment. And we start to see the need for prayer. When James opens his epistle and says, if any of you lack wisdom, and we start to say, sign me up for that list, he says, let him ask of God. And so wisdom, among other things, true knowledge of God, pure desires for it, which brings forth faithful obedience and sound discernment of persons, circumstances, matters, and so forth. In essence, wisdom is the ability by God's grace to apply true knowledge of God's will unto one's circumstances for the glory of God. When we have that, we have wisdom. Now, secondly, what is the source of this wisdom? We can say from the text, fundamentally, it's God himself. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We'll get to that opening part, the fear of the Lord. But notice the Lord is central and the knowledge of the holy is zeroing in on this revelation of God as holy and holiness itself. 
We see in Romans 16, 27, Paul calls God the only wise God. God only wise. In Proverbs 2 and verse 6, we read that the Lord giveth wisdom. And as already mentioned, if any man lacks wisdom, what is he to do? Well, you know what we're to do. We're to get the best book on the subject, sit down and start reading. Well, that is a means to be employed, but that's not the source. The source is God. Let him ask of God. Now, we don't just ask and sit idly by. We make use of the scriptures. We make use of godly Christian fellowship. We make use of helpful books. But we're using them as means through which we're yearning and making our petitions known unto God. I need you to teach me. This is why, by the way, every time you open the Bible, you should begin with a moment of solemn reflection of your need for God to impart wisdom unto you. You need, I need, we need God's grace to lead us in the way of wisdom because he's the source of it. We can learn things from men, but even then God's the source of our learning and of our wisdom. How is it that God provides us instruction and wisdom preeminently by his word. You can see this in a number of places. Notice, for instance, in Psalm 119 and there at verse 98. Psalm 119 and verse 98. Here we read in this very helpful psalm, Thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Verse 100, I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. Verse 104, through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Sometimes people say, listen, I don't need God's commandments because God's my teacher. Brethren, that's to divide things that are put together. God is our teacher by his commandments. He instructs us by his word. He uses his word. We aren't spiritualists, pagan or so-called Christian that think, well, we just have the spirit who leads us. No, the spirit who inspired his word makes use of his word to teach and lead us and guide us in the way of wisdom. This is why, as mentioned earlier, the Christian's natural, supernatural, gracious development is one of increasing longing for God's Word. And you and I can test our spiritual health by asking a simple question. What practical evidence is there in my life that I long to know God's Word? What practical evidence is there that I'm prioritizing God's Word? What practical evidence is there that this is my delight? It'll show itself by reading, certainly. It'll show itself by memorizing, certainly. Meditating, certainly. But it will show itself by practicing God's Word. It's the preeminent way by which we show that we long to know God's Word when our lives are brought into practice. Think of it this way. A child comes to a parent and says, you know, Dad, what would you like me to do today? You know, I've got free time. I'm willing to help. What would you like me to do? You know, the father would be 
perhaps surprised or encouraged or whatever else and say, well, you know, I've got a number of projects that you can help me on. Would you take a couple hours and work on this? Absolutely, I'll do that. The father walks away thinking that his son is quite content and happy to help. He's learned, you know, the father's taught him what he wants him to do and so on. He walks away, comes back a couple hours later. The son has done nothing. The father doesn't say, well, hey, thanks for hearing me out. The father looks at his son and says, what were you doing? You know, you came to me, you asked me, what, what would you like me to do? I told you what I'd like you to do. You had the time, you had the training, you had the provision, but you didn't do it. The father doesn't say, hooray, you asked. There comes now a reproof, son. I told you and you didn't. Brethren, we have need to study God's word. It's the source by which God communicates to us his will and leads us in the way of wisdom. But the practical evidence that this is our desire is our obedience to his word. Notice we reference Psalm 119. We read that I keep thy precepts. Not I know them, not I simply have memorized them, but I keep them. God's word is instructs us not in the mere intellectual understanding of wisdom, but in the practical guidance unto wisdom. So the source of wisdom is God himself as he communicates it to us by his word. Now thirdly, the gaining of wisdom. How is it, and this is preeminently what the text hits upon, how is it that we gain wisdom? Notice the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This tells us that if ever we're to gain, to grow, to advance in wisdom, it will be as we reverence God, as we have high, holy, reverential thoughts and understanding of the Lord. Now, who among us would say, yeah, I have irreverent, and I'm content with irreverent thoughts of God? You know, none of us, we pray, would be so careless as to say, I'm irreverent with God and I'm fine with it. And so perhaps all of us would say, I have reverent thoughts of God. If that's the case, then we can start to ask, well, what shows that I have reverent thoughts of God? We actually have, again, guidance on that from God's law. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Think of that. There's a revelation of The name of God, which because it is so full of glory, so full of weight, so full of honor, will not be taken in vain by those that know it. It's not casually and carelessly pushed around and lightly used. But brethren, you know as well as I that the name is not just this syllable or that combination of syllables. It's the revelation of God. Now think for a moment. Is that our disposition toward God's revelation? How do we come to his word? How do we handle his word? Is his word something before us that we come to and say, this, though a book, is a book like none other? You know, sometimes we have this thought, well, what if Jesus Christ were to walk through those doors? And we think to ourselves, well, we'd sit up and we'd be given diligence to these things. We'd be stirred up. We might be tired. We're standing up. What if I said to you, next Sunday, morning and evening, Jesus Christ is going to be present in this church? You know what happened? People would show up. But you know what would happen later? 
They would die off. Because brethren, Jesus Christ is present. His word is present. His word is preached. His word is held forth. And what we start to realize is what we think of as reverent thoughts toward God is often our own coddling of our conscience and thinking one thing while our practice shows another. Uh, You know what? I've not read the Bible five days this week. That's okay. Big deal. No, it is a big deal because God's word has been neglected. When we reverence somebody, we pay attention to that somebody. And when we hear what that person says, we come to his promises and we believe them. We come to his commandments and we obey them. We come to his reproofs and we confess our sins. You see, brethren, reverencing God is not just us, as it were, crawling on the ground as menial servants. It is looking at the whole of his revelation and saying, this is God's. And so the promises are treated with reverence, which doesn't just mean we have this false piety, but rather these promises are from God. And so I can come and embrace them. I must come and embrace them. We say, well, I don't have the, the strength to do so. So we cry out to this God, oh, give me grace, forgive my sins to embrace these promises. A commandment comes and we look at our circumstances and we say, well, if I obey that commandment, I'm going to be head strong into the very difficult situation I know will come to pass. Well, what's being shown there is we reverence the circumstance, we reverence the person, the obstacle, the opposition, more than we reverence God. When God is reverenced, His Word becomes not only central in our intake, it becomes governing of our thoughts, of our words, of our action, And of our time. Why? Because it's God's word. Consider this for a moment. There's a relationship between one's understanding of what scripture is. And one's practice as a Christian. So what is scripture? The Bible tells us it is the God breathed word. It is that which is given by inspiration of God. Well, what does that mean? It means every word of the Bible is God's word. Now, if we have that understanding of what the Bible is, and when we start to think of who that God is, it changes our approach to the scriptures. But brethren, if the scriptures are just sort of the mishmash of ancient wisdom cultivated over generations by men, you and I have the ability to dismiss it and say, well, I'll take this, I'll take that, I'll believe this, I'll believe that, I'll submit to this, I'll submit to that, but not to those things. But see, when we see it's God's word, it constrains, it compels us to acknowledge it is above us, it is over us. It governs what we're to think. It governs how we're to think. It governs what we speak and how we speak it. It governs what we do and how we do it. Because the word is the word of him whom we fear, whom we honor, whom we love, whom we adore, whom we worship. God is great and greatly to be praised. The gaining of wisdom is by first seeing the God who gives wisdom 
as glorious. This is something we have to come to terms with in our own understanding. We know the, the words, God is glorious. We know the words, God is majestic. But there's a difference, isn't there, between knowing the words, knowing the doctrine, and actually knowing him of whom the doctrine speaks. So think of it this way. In the Psalms we have, taste and see that God is good. It doesn't just say, know that God is good, understand that God is good, but taste and see that God is good. What's it getting at? It's going to experience it. You have to know this. You have to come to the gracious experience of knowing that God is good. I imagine that if you had caught Isaiah around Isaiah 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 and said, Hey, Isaiah, do you believe that God is holy? That Isaiah would have had no hesitation saying, Absolutely, he's holy. But there's a change in Isaiah 6. He sees the Lord high and lifted up and he's impacted by it. If you had said to Peter, hey, Peter, do you believe you're a sinful man? Yeah, of course. You know, I've been taught that. I know this. And then he sees the display of Christ's glory and he falls on his face and says, depart from me. What happened? Nothing intellectual changed in Peter. But Peter was now witness to and experienced a display of the glory of Christ. Brethren, we may have our definitions right, we may have them memorized well, we may have our arguments in order, but there's a question that must be answered. Have we the knowledge of God? Are we those who know God? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. This experience of the knowledge of God's grace, this tasting of it, this uh, drawing near unto him and knowing him, not merely knowing about him. So ask yourself for a moment, can it rightly be said of you that your relationship to God is more than just knowing about God? Can it actually be said that you know God? Can it actually be said that you have experienced something of the manifestation of the knowledge of God? If that's the case, one evidence of it will be a sincere reverence of his name, a care to honor that name. Spurgeon says it so beautifully when he says, listen, a dog barks when his master is shamed or in danger. And shall not I so shout when the name of my God is taken in vain? Ask yourself for a moment. When God's name is taken in vain, what happens to you? Dare I ask this question? If you take God's name in vain, what happens to you? What happens when the Bible is treated as if it's just a source of jokes and other such things? You as well as I have access. Every once in a while you see these sermons so-called and someone's up there just flipping around the Bible and rolling off joke after joke after joke and the people are saying this is a great time. Oh, come to our church. It's fun. It's exciting. It's this great thing. But brethren, here's the question. Where's the fear of God? 
where's the knowledge that the God whom they say they're proclaiming is a holy, glorious, and majestic God? Where is the knowledge of the God that makes a prophet fall down? Where is the knowledge of the glory of God that makes an apostle fall down? Not into these bodily contortions of man-made affections, but rather of the solemn drawing near and saying, this God exceeds all else. This God is glorious. When that God is known, the counsel of friends that is contrary to the counsel of God becomes meaningless. A sword at someone's throat becomes meaningless. The temptation to compromise principles of worship becomes meaningless. Why? Because we know the God whose worship it is, whose counsel it is, whose promises they are. We know that God. And when we know that God, it bolsters us to do what? To walk in wisdom. To avoid the way of the fool. To avoid the broad way that leads to destruction. And to walk in the narrow way that leads to everlasting life. But brethren, as we'll see, it also makes us to become like God. Not essentially, not as He is eternally, but rather it does make us to be increasingly holy. And you know what else it does? It makes us increasingly merciful. Those two aren't antithetical. They're brought together by God and they're cultivated by Him in us. That's why we'll see when we get to James that wisdom that's from above is first pure, then what? Peaceable. How are you to show your wisdom? He says, in the meekness of wisdom. Brethren, here's the thing. We look at the world and we say they're wrong because they have the wrong material they're spewing. Here's the thing. They're wrong not only because of the false material they're spewing, they're wrong because of the manner that they're spewing it. That heavy-handed, that pointy finger that's driving it home is contrary and antithetical to the wisdom that's from above that earnestly desires and delights in helping others learn, that takes care to sit down with somebody and isn't out to get a tally mark of a victory, but is rather seeking to guide someone along to know God. Jacob ever walked with a limp, having wrestled with God in prayer. And the believer in one way is humbled likewise that though made strong in the faith and knowledge and wisdom of God, is yet weakened as well, so as to be one who serves others. Well, brethren, there's much more before us, the Lord willing, but as we begin this series, let us close this first sermon by noting this. If you and I will be those who are wise, it starts by focusing our attention upon God as made known in the scriptures. And so, let me ask you for just a moment this one question. How well do you know God? Not only how well do you have definitions, how well do you, have you read books, what good books have you read, but rather is your knowledge of God measured by your likeness to God? That's the question before us. 
it's not a question about, yeah, look at my library. You know, I've read all of these. Some of these I've read twice. You know, I've noted this and I've got all these quotes and I've got these things and here's my knowledge of God. No. The question is, are you like God? Are you like Him in His holiness? Are you like Him in His righteousness? Are you like Him in His gentleness toward His children? Are you like Him in His mercy and compassion toward those who are broken? Are you like Him in your kindness and so forth as He is? Because that's what the knowledge of God produces. Are you like God in your faithfulness and steadfastness? That's likeness to God. It's this which we must know. And the way we first know Him is by His Word and pleading, O Lord, make me to know You. I will not say, show me Your glory, for no man can see Your glory and live, but do draw near and make me to know Your name. Proclaim unto me Your name as You proclaimed it to my forefather in the faith. Proclaim it to me, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful and long-suffering and pardoning sin, iniquity and transgression. Make me to know this. Make me to know the name of the Lord who is holy, holy, holy. Not just in my brain, but make me to understand it and through understanding penetrate and change my heart so that I would know God. Because it's when we know God that then we have the beginning of wisdom. So brethren, do you know the God of the Bible? And to the extent that you do, is it shown in your life, your speech, your time, your desires, your actions? Now, brethren, none of us can say it so perfectly There are things in each of us that grieves us of ourselves. But brethren, is the work begun? Because if it's begun, it's begun by His grace. It's begun by His work and mercy. And if it's begun, it gives us encouragement to continue coming and saying, give me more knowledge of you. Not just in my mind, but through my mind, instructing my mind, inclining my will, enlarging my heart making me to know you that I may walk with you, that I may serve you and be a servant to others to help them. The Lord so blessed. Would you stand with me for prayer?